0: This is New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Banar Madani My guest, Nasser Qobodzadeh, is a research fellow at the Institute for Social Justice at the Australian Catholic University. His interests lie in the study of many things, Islamic political theology, secularism, state-religion society relations, and Middle East, and more specifically, Iranian politics. He has worked as editor-in-chief of the Foreign Policy Service of the Iranian Student News Agency, or Isna a communications officer for the UNDP and head of Information Resource Center for the UNICEF office in Tehran. Nasser has authored already authored two books in Persian, A Study of People's Divergence from the Ruling System in 2002 and The Caspian Sea Legal Regime, Neighboring Countries and U.S. Policies in 2005. Today we talk about his latest book, Religious Secularity, published by Oxford University Press just a few months ago. Nasser welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. It's wonderful to have you here.
1: Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, I wonder if you could begin uh, by saying just a few words about yourself, um, where you were raised, uh, where you studied while you were in Iran, um, when you came to Australia, your PhD field of study.
1: Yeah, I grew up in a small city in northwest of Iran, Ardabil. Its name is, and. It's interesting because uh, this book project is linked to a sort of my personal journey as well. I grew up as a religious person all my teenager time and yeah, I mean when I was young I was very religious. Until uh, the time that when I moved to Tehran, the capital city of Tehran, to do I mean, to go to the uni and then I started reading and through the discussions with the friends and with, with my lecturers back at the uni, Shahid Besht University. I started changing for, uh, uh, in terms of my religious beliefs and ideas. And then gradually I realized that it's not just me who is experiencing these things. I mean, it's somehow the product of the lived experience of the Islamic State that this imposed ideology that wanted to convert us to a good believer. Then it's backlash in, in a way. And it's the sure that as an Iranian, anybody will, will uh, agree with me that it has been a journey for many young generation, a new generation who was, I mean, uh, educated and trained by the Islamic State. And then as a student of political science, I became interested, as it's a public interest as well for, for every single person in Iran to to study religion and state relations. As if you go to Iran in every party even in the weddings, you will see that people talking about the religion and politics. That's so so popular topic in Iran.
0: Yeah.
1: And and then I, I I did my master's degree on the how people's values has changed from religious values to more Western or in a way national values. And one of the books that I published the uh, people's divergence from the uh, Islamic State is exactly about that that how for example i've explored that how people uh choose names for their for their newborn babies i mean if you look back to the to the figures to the to the statistics in the early after revolution particularly for the first decade when there was still this ideological ideas uh very strong among the people there are more religious people religious names that people choose for their own children but from the second Decade onwards you see more national names. I mean there are restrictions on the Western names There are more national names that they choose for their children and in terms of the books that published the the English language books Has been increased in the, after the second decades of the, after the Islamic revolution Dramatically in comparing with the for example religious books, which were supported sponsored by the Islamic uh, state and different organizations Uh Later, when I came in two thousand eight to Australia for uh, some reasons, particularly because of my disappointment with the Iranian politics, I started working on feminism and multiculturalism for for a few years, for two years actually, two years of my PhD. And then this two thousand nine happened, the uh, uh, election and post-election uh, riots. And then I suddenly became very excited, seeing that oh, there is a the changes happening. So and then I put aside that project and I restarted working on religion and politics. And because I had just two years to finish my PhD, I thought that the good idea is to use the the materials that I had about the societal secularity. This was not the concept that I used back in Iran, but later when I became familiar with the literature I find that the societal secularity was what I was working back in Iran for my master's degree. And then I can do a good job as a PhD thesis of documenting that how Iranian people have gotten away from the uh, religious and religious discourse. And then I started working on the some of the scholars' works, some of scholars' journey, particular intellectual relig- religious intellectuals' journey, because they were or they are in a way the driving forces behind all these changes, which is which has happened in Iran or, I mean, after the second decade of the decades after the revolution. And it turned out to be a very interesting topic, and it became the whole thing that I, I, I worked on, and I, I wrote the book on specifically theological or jurisprudential foundations of these changes which has happened after revolution in Iran.
0: Okay, great. I I want to actually talk to you about. Um, I want to ask you questions about this religious intellectual movement. But I guess um, before we get there, it might be prudent to to just talk about religious secularism as a category. I love when you. Uh, I think it's uh, just the very first few pages when the first time you want to talk about you you talk about religious secularism as a category in your book. You call it uh, seemingly. You say it's seemingly oxymoronic. Um, can you can you talk about that? Yeah. Can you talk about how you came upon this this term, and also why you think it's oxymoronic and why we. Yeah. Could you Could you define it a little bit?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, the first thing to clarify is that I intentionally use uh, the concept of secularity, not secularism. Uh, I, I use. Secularity intentionally, and I owe this to Professor John Keane, who I had once six hours of discussion and debate with him about uh, this concept, and then I finally came to the to the conclusion that I I need to use secularity. I use secularity to distinguish it from the related concepts and terms, which in public discussions usually uh, we forget of making, I mean, distinction between these terms. They are very close. And one thing is the secularization. Uh, secularization is a, a sort of a comprehensive uh, project on comprehensive social, political, and religious transformation, which has been experienced in the West throughout a few centuries. And it's a comprehensive in terms of it solves the problem of science and religion and it solves the problem of worldliness and next worldliness, as well as at the political sphere about the separation of church and the state. So it's not just about the politics or separation of church and the state. It's a comprehensive societal, political and even philosophical project. When I say religious secularity, I don't refer to that secularization. And secularization had this dimension of elimination of religion from the public sphere or people i mean getting more uh, getting away from religion and being more irreligious or pushing the religions to the private spheres to to the i mean which was linked to the to the theory of the secularization and the uh, modernization in a way and also i'm uh, i'm distinguishing it from the the concept of secularism because secularism is the a political product of secularization in the West, particularly separation of church and state, it, it is more political paradigm. And because it's linked with this East, like other East liberalism, communism, and that's why. And the other problem with the secularism is that it is, in a way, demonized in the Muslim world. I mean, throughout the Muslim world, if you travel, I mean, everywhere secularism is a some sort of the link with the colonialism, with the imperialism and the, with the West. And it is conceived and correctly it is as a imported, imposed phenomena. And there is another uh, important and interesting distinction that the differences between the secularism in a Muslim world and in the West. In West, secularism was, as I said, uh, the product, the outcome of a comprehensive secularization project and secularization project started much earlier than secularism as a poly- po- political paradigm but in the muslim world it was actually the secularism as a political doctrine paradigm which tried to give birth to the secularization that was a political project introduced by the most of the utter- mostly authoritarian regimes in these muslim worlds like Ataturk Reza Khan and Muhammad Pasha in Egypt to secular, secularize the society, it was top-down project to push that, the religion towards more, more to, to the private spheres. So I use religious secularity specifically to distinguish it from the secularism and secularization. And also, I use sec, religion next to the secularity to show another important and I think that this is very important to, to highlight uh, this differences between the West experience and what's happening currently in Iran. In the West, secularism was, in, in its political form, was, the, uh, was the, uh, the, the drivers of the secularism were the political philosophers.
0: Mm-hmm. For
1: example, John Locke, I mean, as the father of the neoliberalism, a, a liberalism, he articulates uh, the secularism from a political perspective. His concern, his motivations, and his methodology is more political uh, lies within the political philosophy rather than the theology or of course he uses many theological discussions and his uh, two treaties is formed in the discussion with the with a, a theologian uh, but he's not a theologian or other uh, i mean uh, uh founding fathers of secularism like Jefferson and the uh, uh, American uh, case is more political philosopher is a president and then uh, he comes from the political background but the most important founders of this discourse which is emerging in the particularly in Iran and also you can trace it in the other parts of the Muslim world they are religious scholars their main projects are, uh, are is religion and uh, this political dimension or political dimension of religion that they are addressing which I call it religious secularity. It's just one part of their, I mean, bigger project, which is a religious reformation discourse. I mean, if you uh, look, uh, Mohammad Akun, uh, as uh, Abu Nas, Abdullah name, all of these key figures are religious philosophers, religious sociologists, and in, in Iran as well. I mean, if you look at Surush Kadivar, Mojdeh Shabestari, Eshkevari Bazargan, they are all, in a way, religious scholars who are working on uh, politics as well. And that's why I'm saying that it's, uh, it's very important to distinguish it from the Western experience, which is more coming from the uh, political philosophy. And
0: So you're basically saying that, that secularism is uh, uh, the way that it's emerging in Iran is different from the Western experience because instead of coming from the emerging, as it did in the West, from the heart of liberalism and this Basically, philosophical discussions is actually coming right from the heart of religion. It's it's a religious movement in itself.
1: Exactly, exactly. And and if you read my book, you will see that always uh, there are references to the Quran, Hadith, and Islamic history. There is nothing. I mean, of course, even uh, when there is a talk about the rational reasoning, even that that methodology is lied within the religious. Religious discourse, and oh, and and uh, uh, there is this uh, uh, Jose Casanova, one of the key figures of the secular uh, secular uh, secularism in the West. Uh, he argues that the Western secularization process or project, as a as the political dimension of this of pro- this project, was a, a, was was a project to emancipate a public space, particularly economy and politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from religion. If you see in the, for example, in the 17th century, mid 17th century in, in UK, this uh, 30 years of the religious wars, it is exactly the harm that religion is doing to the politics, to the public sphere. And uh, John Locke is trying to save public sphere politics from religion, the harm mm-hmm. of religion. And that's why they are pushing religion to the churches, in, inside the churches. And it's interesting that uh, John Locke clearly and explicitly, he says that whatever happens within the churches, it's their own business. I mean, they can do whatever they want because the one who believes in their religion and he or she goes to the, uh, to the church, and then after that, it's their, their religious business. But public sphere should be free of religious and religious uh, issues. But this discourse, which is emerging in the Muslim world, in particular in Iran that I'm talking and it is really interesting to see that how the lived reality, the lived experience of the Islamic State is driving this this discourse. They are trying to emancipate religion from politics.
0: Ah, uh, it's the other way around.
1: Exactly. And that's what they are arguing. That I mean this and if you you read their writings, most of the scholars who are religious scholars who are working on this area, they always have the driving concern for them is the harms that politics, state, the political power <laughs> has done so the, to religion over the last almost four, four decades that religion has been, uh, a religious state has been a, a, in power in Iran.
0: Okay, this is, this is a fabulous insight. I really appreciated it while I was reading the book. Could you talk about the central message um, that you're trying to convey in religious secularity? I mean, I, I realize this is one of the central messages, but there's a bunch of stuff in there. Could you could you talk about them?
1: I mean, there are two components for the for, for the whole book. The one, first component is to challenge the uh, religious foundations, the religious uh, principles that they, the Islamic State or the so-called Islamic State is using to justify or to locate itself within the religious theological framework. So the first component of the book is a challenge or questioning of these foundations or religious foundations of the, the, the notion of Islamic State. And the second component is about arguing or promoting the compatibility of Islam and religion with the secular democracy. And I think that the because the Islamic State has dominated and is uh, leaning towards forming a form of totalitarian uh, system, both in the political sphere and in the religious spe- sphere, the most of the arguments that has been proposed so far by these scholars uh, are mostly focused on the, uh, in a way, rejection of this, this uh, proclaimed Foundation of a religious foundation of the Islamic State. So uh, I should admit that the second component of the book is weaker than the first component because, uh, in a way, uh, the the most parts of the argument is formed in, in in form of rejecting what the Islamic State is is claiming. So that's why you will see that in the uh, throughout the book, all this uh, diverse. Uh, or, or, or the diverse range of the scholars that I have worked on them from very traditional, the traditional class of the clergy like Ayatollah Grand, Ayatollah Montazeri, to the very modern like uh, Abdul Karim Surush or Mushtaid Shabestari, they all articulating their arguments against the Islamic State and they are all challenging from their own perspective, religious perspective, the, the, the religious foundations of the Islamic State. Just one important dimension of this religious secularity that I, I forgot to mention is that it's based on the argument that Islam is, provides more conducive context for secularity, even in comparison with Christianity. If you look back to the, to the history of Christianity and how the, the secularization process took place over there uh you may say i mean in a loose generalization there were three steps of coming to the point of forming a secular world the first step was the the conflict between being this worldliness and next worldliness that was a big challenge within the christianity because in christianity the whole world this world is aiming to the next world and you cannot uh, have any uh ultimate goal in this world. And everything that you do is aimed in a way uh, to, to, to the to, to the next world or the, the hereafter. But in Islam, there is no such a thing. In Islam, from the beginning, this world matters a lot. And you never see in a, in a I mean, pure Islamic perspe- a perspective of asking you to abandon the world. I mean, Prophet Muhammad enjoyed the best things in the life and his followers as well. Nobody said that the wealth is bad or the, for example, one of the examples that they use in the literature is uh, in Catholicism the relation with the opposite sex. opposite opposite sex is just for the sake of bringing someone to this world to have a have a child. But in Islam, it's not like I mean, enjoying the pleasures in the life, food and everything is is embedded within the Islam. Mm-hmm. And second. Battle within the in the Christian uh, experience was uh, between the science and religion, and again that sort of battle never took place in in Islam. Islam from the beginning was was fine with the with the science, and now Iranian ruling clergy they don't have any problem of using the the latest technology to pursue their nuclear ambitions, whatever it's a weapon or whatever it is, but they don't have any problem with using this all the latest technologies. The third dimension on which Christendom has been more successful in comparing with the Islam is the political area, which is more controversial because of the Prophet Muhammad's ten years of governance in Medina, and that's the most challenging and in a way misleading phenomena, historical phenomena for the Muslim in the contemporary world which, I mean, and the the proponents of the Islamic State uh, use or misuse that experience a lot to promote their own uh, version of uh, Islam or political Islam, to say.
0: So you start the book uh, talking about uh, dominant and marginal Shia discourses on sovereignty. This concept of wilaya or guardianship um, or as they say in, in uh, Persian, velayat. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, the dominant uh, sort of discourse on sovereignty and then what the marginal ones were?
1: The Sovereignty is, is, is one of those uh, controversial, but at the same time very simple debate or discussion within the Shiite world. The very existence of, of Shiite from the beginning is linked to the concept of sovereignty what this what divides i mean what, what what make the shiite different from the sunni is exactly the claim that the uh the imam ali the first imam uh, by, by, uh, of the shiite or the fourth caliph of, of of the sunnis uh, the shiite claims that he had divine sovereignty god had appointed him through the prophet muhammad and then his 12 ancestors, uh, predecessor who is his sons and uh, uh, had the uh, divine sovereignty as well. That's where basically the problem starts. I mean, it's a basically political problem. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, in 1941, when the last Imam, according to the Shiite theology, disappeared for the second uh, or occult, uh, greater occultation, uh, they, they solved the problem in a way. They said that, okay, this Political divine right, political divine sovereignty belongs to the infallible imams, which are 12 specifically and nobody else. And since he's not around, he's hidden, he has disappeared. Nobody else, nobody can claim to have sovereignty and no, nobody can have a legitimate government. This dictated a sort of apolitical history throughout the Shiite for centuries. And it was dominant till the till the uh, Safavid era in sixteenth century. Which somehow there was a small changes during the Safavid era. Safavids uh, wanted to have this. I mean, to 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 have it some sort of the theological counter argument for the Ottoman, which they didn't want to be a part of this uh, em- emperor. So they converted Iranian to Shia and they invited. Uh, cleric uh shiite clerics from Lebanon, jabal amel to come to iran and to to participate in the process of converting iranian to shiite and uh, shiite ulama li, like mohammad keraki like, mohammad baqir sabzevari and majlisi they articulate articulated shiite theology by claiming that jurists has in a way of generic appointment by the from the hidden Imam, hidden Imam has appointed all jurists as his representative on the earth while he is he is, uh, uh, he is uh, hidden, and we are the uh, we have the authority to authorize king to give the legitimacy to king so that he can rule, and this was a breakthrough in the Shiite history in terms of giving the first giving the authority to the jurists. And then second to giving the authority to Jews to delegate this legitimacy to, or this authority to the, to the king. And there was this mutual understanding between king and uh, clerics. But it still, you had a sort of secular setting in a way that clerics were in charge of religious dom- domain and uh, the king supported them, I mean, through throughout many, many uh, uh, ways. And they, then they gave the legitimacy to the king. So still you had these two, to to spheres, I mean, political, religious, and secular spheres. And but again, after uh, uh Sheikh Ansari, this changed again. Sheikh Ansari, uh, as you know, was one of the prominent and maybe the first uh, Marja'i Taqlid, the the a the, 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 uh, prominent Marja'i Taqlids in the Shiite history, and he not only subscribes to the apolitical. Uh, version of uh, uh, Shiite theology, but also he clearly said that whoever who cooperates with the king or any king, they are committing sin. And he he became dominant, his, his theology became dominant for, again, uh, uh, two centuries, till the time that Khomeini came in mid-20th century onwards from particularly from the 1960 uh, 1970 onwards that he articulated this idea of the uh, theory of the walayat faqih which is a big a breakthrough from the whole traditional uh, di- traditional context of the shiite both in the seminary in the political sphere of course there has been incidents and occasions of Clerics intervening in the politics, like during the constitutional revolution in uh, in early 20th century, but never a single cleric claimed to have both political and religious authority in the hands of a jurist. And that's what uh, Khomeini did actually. Khomeini eliminated king, and he literally sat on the place of claiming both religious and political authority. For the for the jurist, and that was a big breakthrough from the whole Shiite, Shiite uh, history. But again, we should we should take into consideration the fact that even after revolution, when Khomeini took the power and consolidated his power, and the many clergy, clerics came into the power, even after that, the most high-ranking clerics, Taglid source of emotion, they kept out of the politics. They did not engage in the politics, they did not support Khomeini, and they did not stood against Khomeini as well. They subscribed to the idea of in a apolitical or quite some of what I call, passive uh, resistance to the Khomeini's idea because they believed in apolitical position. So except Ayatollah Shari'at Madari, who in a way uh, came to politics and openly and explicitly challenged Khomeini and he in a way supported political action, but fought for the apolitical religion through through being engaged in politics. But the other high ranking clerics kept away, and they kept their i mean they remained loyal to the apolitical discourse and and even today and and, and it's not confined to Iran. I mean, if you look to to Iraq, Lebanon, you will see the same, same patterns. I mean, Ayatollah Khomeini never uh, engaged in politics. Ayatollah Sistani still tries hard to keep away from politics as much as he could. Of course, he's dragged into politics, and, but still you see that he never uh, accepted to be in the, in the position of gaining politic, power. And there are many reports that he has uh, strongly advised clerics to stay away from the, uh, from the politics.
0: So there's something you did that I I didn't know, something you talk about that right after the revolution, Ayatollah Khomeini exactly right after the revolution was not really supporting the appointment of clerics to political positions in the beginning. Um why do you think that was and why did he change his mind?
1: I don't know. It's it's one of the puzzles that I mean, I have no clear answer to that because I'm not I was not in Khomeini's mind, <laughs> sure. to, to read his mind. But I mean, when we talk about the Khomeini and his political theory, we cannot talk about one Khomeini. There are few Khomeini. Khomeini before 1960 is different from after 1960, and Khomeini after 1970 is different from Khomeini in 1978 and 79. And again, in 1980, Khomeini changes a lot, and in 1985, again, there is another change for Khomeini. Let me briefly uh, go to that, I mean, if we have time uh, and if it's all right with you.
0: Sure. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, before 1960, Khomeini, in a way, never engaged in politics. And it's really interesting to see that when Taleghani was in politics, he didn't play any role during the nationalist movement uh, 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 I mean, of Mosaddegh era. And even when uh, Nabob Safavi was in, in trouble and he was executed, there are some stories which is not, I mean, we are not, we don't know if it's right or not, or or, or, or it's a fake story, that Nabob Safavi at one point I mean, escaped to Qom and stayed at Khomeini's, I mean, a Sikh refugee in Khomeini's place. That's what the Nabob Sahavi's wife tells, but there is no evidence for that. And But it's obvious that Khomeini did not subscribe to Nabob's cause back then, and he didn't openly support Nabob. I mean, there is no record of that. So Khomeini kept out of politics altogether before Ayatollah Bruggerdi died in 1962. Yeah, as I said, 1962. And after that, Khomeini started becoming interested in politics or being more engaged in politics. And the first book that he wrote in 1964, I think, if I'm not mistaken, was The Cashful Asrar. And in which he is still subscribed to the idea of the monarchy. He agrees that he he, he defends the position of the monarchy, but he asks the, the, the king to apply to adhere to the Islamic rules, Islamic principles, to the Sharia. And he... He, he is still in that belief when he is, he went to, to exile. And in 1971 is the first time that he articulates his ideas of the Walayat Fahri. Of, co- of course, before that, in 1969, he had some, some sessions, uh, lectures in, in, in Turkey where he talked about this idea, but it's not uh, very well documented in the K- Ketabul Bay. But in the, uh, in, in Najaf, he clearly Throughout the 13 lectures that he gave in Najaf Seminary, he articulates this idea of Walayat Faqih. If you read the Walayat Faqih, you would have no doubt that he puts the jurist, the clergy, in charge. There is no place for the non-clergy. It's a jurist who has the divine sovereignty, who has the divine political authority for, in both religious and political dimensions. And it is exclusive political right for jurists, but right in the eve of the revolution, he doesn't talk about the jurist's role, and even he he gave i think one hundred and twelve interviews in paris when closer to the revolution, and the world were realizing that oh, there's this guy over there, and he's maybe becoming uh the king in Iran. then the old media approached him in 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 Paris and he gave uh, more than 100 interviews and in none of them he mentioned that I'm gonna be a or I'm gonna be in charge even uh, there are interviews recorded that uh, clearly when he was asked that, uh, are you gonna take any political position he explicitly and very clearly says that no I'm not gonna be in politics I'm not gonna be I'm, I will be just playing a role of supervising and he says so about the clerics lo- role in the Iran, uh, future of Iran and interestingly, when he comes, he, he, he came back to Iran from exile. He went to Gom. He didn't stay in Tehran, and he asked clerics to keep out of politics—not to keep out of politics, but not to take presidential position, for example, not to, to run for the presidency. But mm-hmm. later he changed his idea, and he returned back to this to his original idea of the vali e mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, there is this argument that you can make that he was playing politics. I mean, he knew what will happen and he was just playing politics to get rid of the, his his uh, opponents. But it's very hard to make a case for that. Or mm-hmm. if uh, his idea had changed during this, those uh, few months to, towards the revolution, it's, mm-hmm. it's again hard to, to argue it. for that. And yeah. again, again, his idea changes later when he is in the power and he tries to practice Sharia. Uh, he comes to the conclusion that it's impossible to practice sharia in the modern world because of the problems that he finds and particularly uh... you will recall that in after revolution there were this uh... huge debate between the parliament and the guardian council which parliament would ratify uh... legislations which were against in a way islamic principles against sharia and the guardian council wouldn't uh... uh... endorse them and uh Khomeini intervenes in that and later he changes his idea of the to the absolute or the uh, And it's interesting that he authorized from a very religious perspective, violating the very basic principles of Islam. And I have quoted this in the book that he clearly, in response to the then uh, President Ayatollah Khomeini, uh says that if the interest of state he says that the state is the the highest priority of the islam and if the interest of the state uh, state requires then we can violate the basic principle like we can put on hold the praying fasting pilgrimage and all other basic principles of of the islam and that's again another a breakthrough of even his early Articulation of the Walayat Faqih, if you read the doctrine of Walayat Faqih, he argues for the formation of Islamic State for the sake of practicing Sharia. But later he changes it. And the practicing Sharia is not the, the basic or the, the, the most important thing. The most important thing is preserving and preserving the Islamic State. And Islamic State becomes Islamic because it is ruled by a jurist. Not because it is practicing Sharia.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, this, this um, discussion about maslahat, um, maslaha, is um, and for in the case of Khomeini, um, his concept of maslahat-e-nizam um, is actually really um, interesting for for people who study uh, not just Shiism but Islam in general because uh, it's the dominant sort of paradigm. But it's a really important concept because uh, Maslaha, the concept of Maslaha has become such a dominant way of looking at reformist reforming jurisprudence. And, um, Khomeini really, uh, presents a particular strand of this concept of Maslaha that's, um, that's interesting. And I'm really glad you cover it in the book. Okay. So I think that we, we, don't have a lot of time, but I, I I think the most important part of the book is how you cover religious the religious intellectual movement and how what you actually say right. is that it's this religious intellectual movement that starts injecting um, the religious secularity uh, the concept of religious secularity into the discourse the political and religious discourse in Iran. Um, uh, in the early 1990s and beyond, um, could you could you talk a little bit first first of all about the religious intellectual movement, and like I said, we don't have a lot of time. Um, and give us some examples of the folks um, uh, that that uh, played the field and what some of their most important ideas were.
1: Yep, yeah. religious intellectuals. Uh, I believe that they are the main drivers of. This discourse, the discourse of religious secularity, and maybe their most important contribution to the whole religious reformation discourse, not just religious secularity, but religious reformation discourse is challenging the the exclusive authority of the clergy, not only in the political area, but also in the religious area. They are presenting themselves as a sort of someone who can speak for religion, who can interpret religion, and also articulate religion in much better way than this traditional clerics. the The concept of or the title of religious intellectuals were coined first, as far as I know, by Abdul Khaim Surush in 1980s, uh, for whom uh, the the, the difference between religious intellectuals and religious scholars or religious leaders is not in the way that they, we, they they are trained or the way that they their dress is different, but particularly in using extra religious sources. The religious intellectuals do not confine themselves to the religious sources, not to the Quran, Sunnah, or Islamic history. They go beyond so that.
0: They could be clerics. They could
1: be clerics. I mean, with this definition, you can say Moshtai Shabbatari Kadivar. Even, I mean, uh, Bayatullah is a controversial to, to include in this category because he's, he's very religiously oriented person. But Eshkabari Kadivar and Moshtai Shabbatari and Mendes Qabel, and they can be called as a religious intellectual. And it's really interesting because, uh, religious intellectuals are challenged by both seculars and religious leaders. <laughs> Biseculars, even someone like uh Jawa Tabatai, Tabatabai or much more secular people outside of Iran the challenge that I mean intellectuality and religiosity cannot go together because when you are religious at some point reason doesn't work for you because you are religious. And from the a conservative or traditional perspective, I mean it's uh, there's no need to explanation that because they, they see their authority in challenge, I mean Particularly, if you go and read the Ms. Bahia's, you will find out, that his concern is very legitimate in a way of seeing uh, uh, this religious intellectual as a as a threat for the very existence of the clergy and their their position or their authority in the public sphere. Uh, so, and 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 in Iran, at least the 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 whole discourse of religious reformation and in particular religious secularity started with uh, in a way with with Surush and followed by the other religious intellectuals and they if I summarize their argument in a way I can say that uh, they challenge the basic tenets of the Islamic State uh, in three ways. One is that they argue that there is no Blueprint for the government and governance in the Islamic uh, resources, Islamic sources, Islamic teachings, and principles. Uh, they read Quran and Sunnah, Hadith, and they argue that there is no any saying any verses in the Quran or saying by Prophet Muhammad or even infallible Imams who would tell us what form of government we should have. Not, not for the contemporary world, but even for their own time, they don't say any, they don't subscribe to any form of governance. And the second challenge, uh, that they, they, they put, they, 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 they introduce to, to, to the Islamic state is by rereading the Islamic history, particularly if you read the very, uh, Initial years of the Islamic history, you will see that in a way uh, the political matters is left to the people to decide. And following the uh, 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 Abdul Razak, uh, who wrote this uh, this book in the 1924, after just the uh, the, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and he he argued that Prophet Muhammad uh had a two position one was the political position and the other one was the prophecy and his political position was just uh, a, a historical phenomenon, historical occurrence it was not a part of his prophecy it
0: was accidental
1: accidental in a way uh, they argue for that and they distinguish between political uh, position of prophet muhammad and uh, and his uh, his prophecy and also for example uh, mehdi bazargan uh investigates the way that the infallible imams uh, lived their lives and they did politics uh and he concludes from the i mean investigating their their lived experience uh he he come to the conclusion that there is no such a thing as a divine uh sovereignty for the infallible imams which is in a way the the, the basic tenets of the shiite and he in a way, challenges that one. For example, he says that Imam Ali accepted the governance, uh, and clearly Imam Ali said that I am accepting the governance that the being the ruler because the people is asking me to do so. Otherwise, I wouldn't go for that. And he was, he didn't uh, challenge. Of course, he believed that he has, he, he is the better person to rule the Muslims, but he didn't believe in the divine sovereignty or Bazagan refers to the Has, Imam Hassan's uh, agreement with Mahdia. He says that I mean, would you uh, would you agree that Prophet Muhammad could negotiate his prophecy with uh, with Gurej? He would never do that because that was a divine uh, sovereignty, divine will that prophecy was handed to Prophet Muhammad. But Imam Hassan negotiated the the political position of the Caliphate and he gave it to the. To the to And even in the contract that they signed, there is a clause which says that after mafia, it will be uh, the people's decision to decide who is going to be the next caliph. And Imam Hassan revolted against Yazid because Yazid, mafia appointed Yazid, uh, 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 violating the, his agreement with Imam Hassan. And again, he goes back saying that Imam Hassan revolted because the Kufi people invited him to be the ruler. Otherwise he, he wouldn't revolt and Imam Hassan has never said that I have the divine right or the God has appointed me. You cannot find any statement like that. So scrutinizing this pol- political history of Islam is another way that these religious intellectuals, I mean, use uh, to 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 challenge the very notion of Islamic state and Bazargan is not alone. I mean, you see that Ishkevari uses the same arguments, uh, Bahari Yazdi and uh, Kadibar as well. Uh, the the other uh, argument that they make is, and and also from the historical perspective, they uh, refer to this long history of Shiite and Shiite tradition of a political history. And they particularly Kedivar has a has a, a, a very comprehensive project about that to show that how this idea of Faghih, or the rule of jurists and divine sovereignty for jurists is quite new and, and it's a sort of what in Islam it's called a bed'ah, It's not original to the uh, Shiite theology. And the last or, or the, another important dimension that they address is the impossibility of practicing Sharia in the modern world as it, from the position of state as the state law. Uh, one of the ways that they are, are argue for that is that the Sharia has got this uh, voluntary nature. You cannot practice Sharia unless that you voluntarily. Subscribe to the, to the Sharia, to the Islamic principles. And if the state take authority of imposing Sharia on individuals, on the believers, then it will lose its very essence of being voluntarily and it cannot be practiced in this way. And also they refer to the lived, a lot to the lived experience of the Islamic state in Iran and that how Islamic state has done many harms to the religion. Uh, the Fekhol Maslaha is a good example that how even Khomeini very, in a very articulated way violated the principles or authorized the state to violate the principles of Sharia. But they talk about the hypocrisy which emerged after revolution. And they talk about that massively about that how people uh, are less religious nowadays in comparing with that the way that they they were before revolution and they say that this experience has not increased religiosity. But what the, the Islamic state has done in Iran is some sort of uh, hypocrisy, making people to pretend that they are mm-hmm. religious, not to become uh, religious. And also this challenging the very sociopolitical dimension of Sharia is another way that they, they use to challenge the, the, the uh, proclaimed Islamic State, the notion of Islamic State. Uh, and their argument is that uh, the socio-political dimension of Sharia, those uh, principles and the principles which is in the Sharia, uh, and they are, they are contextual and they are responses to the questions of the revelation era in the Prophet's time. And you cannot apply those principles to the current time, which is the problems, the questions and issues is totally different from that era, from the revelation era. And they challenge the Sharia's, uh, Sharia's capacity to answer, to, to, to answer the questions or the problems that we have nowadays. This is a, a, a one of the important distinction between uh, Khomeini and those who subscribe to the idea of, in a way, political Islam, which is more, I mean, uh, uh more widespread issue, and in the Muslim world, in the Arab world, Islam is the solution, is the slogan to use for that, uh, which claims that Islam has got answers for everything, because Islam is the, the last religion, it's the seal of the prophethood, so whatever that we need, we can go back to Islam to the Sharia, and we can find solutions and answers for that. And if we are lagging behind the West, behind the West modernization, it is because we haven't looked back to the religion, we haven't used the religion. And it it was not confined to Khomeini, it was all over the Muslim world, even uh, religious intellectuals, to, to say so, like shariat, Shariati, Ali Shariati, subscribe to the idea that Sharia can provide us uh, with with everything that we need, and uh, for example, Abdul Karim Suresh argues that Sharia is mostly about the legal dimension of religion. It doesn't cover even the ethical or spiritual dimension of the religion. And the the problems, the issues, the questions that we we deal in the contemporary world, they are not all legal issues. I mean, they are far beyond legal issues. And this legal knowledge. Uh, Sharia, as a legal knowledge, cannot provide us solutions and answers for all the issues that we have.
0: Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, the religious intellectuals that we're talking about here, um, can you give us an idea of um, what they propose this um, logistically on the ground um, as far as political systems go? Can you can you uh, tell us what they propose um, as far as the political system goes um, that that contains religious secularity?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question, and I mean this is something that it is in the process of being unfolded. I mean it's in process of being articulated, as I mentioned earlier, because the Islamic State is very dominant and it, it is leaning towards creating this totalitarian authority within the religious and political domains. So the most parts of the, their efforts, this intellectual, re, religious intellectuals efforts have been channeled, uh, towards challenging the religious foundation of Islamic State. So, uh, the, this, uh, this, what what you call it? It's a affirmative part of the discourse is not unfolded enough yet, and mm. I mean there are many questions to to raise over there. But generally, you would say that one way of of articulating for the secular democracy is that they disqualify religion from offering a proposal for the governance. That's one thing. And that's what they have focused so far, to disqualify religion, sharia, and religious teachings from politics. Or removing sanctity from politics, in a way. And when when they get there, you would say that they generally say that, I mean, to put it simply, of course, it's very complicated. There are different articulations for that. But to put it very simply, uh, they say that, so, okay, it's left to us to decide what to do us as a human being as a believer and since the democracy secular democracy is the latest findings of human being and i mean there are direct quotes from them i mean for example from Kedibar, i think that, that uh it's not the product of the west it's the product of the humanity which has come to this point that secular democracy is the best best alternative best governance system that we have it doesn't say that it is the the perfect one but it is the best that we have already uh, till now and that's mm-hmm. why the ra- the logic tells us to subscribe to that idea this is the mm-hmm. simplest way of putting uh, putting that how they articulate uh, to to, uh, to subscribe to the idea of the secular democracy but there are other more more uh, what's that articulation within the traditional context as well for example ayatollah montazeri has got his own version of of the uh, subscribing to the idea of democracy he he offers the story of elect uh in contrast to the theory of, uh, theory of appointment he goes back to the islamic uh jurisprudence Shia jurisprudence of the uh generic appointment and a specific appointment nasba um and nasba Khas. and he agrees with the idea that there was 12 13, in a way, uh, specific appointments by God. And one was Prophet Muhammad and 12 imams. And after that, we don't have any specific appointment. And it's a generic appointment in a way that all clerics, jurists, are appointed to, in a way, manage the Muslims' affairs, most religious and political and social. Mm -hmm. But he puts five scenarios within the religious context. That how to appoint one jurist as the ruler among the old gener- all, all jurists because there are thousands of jurists, <laughs> and <clears throat> it's very very challenging problem because this problem has been with the Shiiteology for centuries. As I said, Hidden Imam disappeared, and six days before his disappearance, apparently, uh, I mean, six uh, he had a four deputies back then uh, during the uh, smaller or uh, smaller occultation uh, and the last deputy six days before his he died he brought a letter apparently from the hidden imam in which he said that this is my last deputy and no one else I'm appointing no one else after him and no one until the time that I come back no one can claim that are representing, represent, can, 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 can claim to be representing me. And it is, in a way, accepted among the old Shiites. There is no dispute about that. And this leaves Shias in a, in a very paradoxical situation that they can never create a sort of hierarchical system. Hmm. And Sheikh Ansari tried this in a way of saying that, uh, or the most knowledgeable source of emulation. But again, they had this problem of what is the most knowledgeable. I mean, how you define which one is the most knowledgeable. And that's mm-hmm. why that, uh, the, the, the Shiite uh, theology was left in a way of pluralistic system for centuries. And mm-hmm. you had these different clerics. And uh, Montezari uses this history, this theology, uh, to argue that there is no way Religious and rational way of appointing or selecting, choosing one jurist who would have authority over the other jurists as well as the nation. And mm-hmm. that's where it comes to the, uh, to the idea that. You it mean
0: political
1: Political as well as political. religious. I mean, as well as religious because even in the religious context, uh, of course it's, it's what Khomeini claimed to, to, for the wali e to have religious authority over the other marja e as well and that's what uh, Khamenei is trying to do in a way to be a prominent marja and to have authority over the other marja e but it doesn't work because it has got this long history of pluralistic system and everybody mm-hmm. could have their own idea and even being marja or not doesn't matter for example you have this experience of Nabob Safavi who challenged the Ayatollah Burujerdi's authority, he went to the seminary, he said that I don't subscribe to your idea. He was a very young uh, 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 cleric and didn't have proper training, but he was in position, I mean, from theological perspective, of rejecting the authority of the, the most eminent Marjaita back, back then. And later uh, uh, Ayatollah, late Ayatollah Montezer uses this, this rich traditional history and theological foundations to argue that there is no way of choosing a, a jurist. Mm-hmm. So what mm-hmm. we are left with is to go to the believers and to give them the authority to choose mm-hmm. one of us. Still, until the, the last day of his life, he, he still believed in the jurist's uh, political engagement. And in a way, he, uh, he advised and he preferred jurists to be a political leader. But he mm-hmm. said that it should happen through the, a popular sovereignty through the people's Mm -hmm. consent. If people Mm -hmm. choose one jurist, then he has the legitimacy and authority to be their leader. Otherwise, there is no uh, any valid uh, or credible uh, justification for the jurist to be the ruler.
0: Right. Well, Nasser, I've I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I just want to ask if there's something we haven't covered that you'd like to talk about.
1: No, I think, yeah, we talked about everything that you, yeah, yes, yeah, that's <laughs> thing else. Yeah.
0: I want to thank you for joining the program. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. Uh, it's very informative. It's a very timely, very important book. Um, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.